Faxi's musical podcast. Let's be honest. If you were a band that was great at crushing power ballads in the early 1990s, when grunge temporarily disrupted everything, radio, record promotion, MTV, those were not exactly simple times for you. Didn't matter how good you were or how great your songs might have been. In the U.S., apparently, the only thing that any of us cared about were dudes in flannel shirts from Seattle. Even Guns N' Roses was having challenging times ahead of them. Was it a matter of bad timing, or was it a matter of a record industry desperately trying to exploit the next best thing and then pounding the living snot out of it while ignoring everybody else? I'm going to go with option two with a little bit of option one because the reality wasn't that grunge killed off hard rock, metal, power pop, or glam. That stuff never actually went away. In fact, some of the best bands of those genres came out after Nirvana released Nevermind in 1991. The problem was that the record industry, especially here in the United States, failed to provide the same enthusiastic support that they would have given that same music in 1988 or in 1989. And that's really too bad because some great music slipped through the cracks here in the U.S., but found their way into making real headlines in other parts of the world. And there are loads of examples of exactly this happening. Interestingly enough, people are finally rediscovering what they didn't know that much about back in the early 90s. And we've talked about those bands many times in this podcast. One such example would be the band Harem Scarum, a wickedly talented band out of Canada that has spent the last 32 years completely undaunted and unmoved by any of it. In fact, Harem Scarum has released 15 albums over the years. They've also had several hits in Canada, Japan, and other parts of the world, including 1991's Slowly Slipping Away, Honesty, and No Justice from their second album, Mood Swings, from 1993. Their songs have been used in TV shows and soundtracks, and the band has never lost sight of what they're really great at, writing great pop songs that rival nearly anything that was being released at the time. In nearly every case, their albums were produced or co-produced by the band's lead singer and one of their primary songwriters, Harry Hess. And this summer, Harem Scarum is about to release a massive 30th anniversary reissue of that second album, 1993's Mood Swings, and they did an incredible job with it by taking a really unique approach, thanks to the help of Sing Records. This is my interview with Harry Hess, the lead singer of the Canadian rock band Harem Scarum, on Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, Mike, how are things? Very good. Nice to talk to you. Great to be here. Congratulations, the 30th anniversary reissue of Mood Swings. It's a pretty, uh, pretty amazing package on this thing. It's like, uh, it's, it's like I can't think of anything you might have left out. <laughs> Tell me about this and, and, and what comes with it, because it's, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, you know what? We wanted to do something special, obviously, for the 30-year anniversary. So um, when, when I started looking into it, I realized that June... Uh, not exactly sure on the date. Either June third or June fourth of uh, of this year is the thirty year anniversary of Mood Swings, and it never came out on vinyl. So mm. that's what we started with, because um, I'm sure you are aware most of the records that came out in the '90s or even beginning of the 2000s. Like, I mean, it was all CDs. 
nobody even was even talking about vinyl at that point it was dead <laughs> and now there's been a huge resurgence we're getting people asking us all the time are you going to release this on vinyl are you going to do that on vinyl so it was a no-brainer to start with the vinyl piece on this one and then we added in a remastered cd with five bonus tracks and so those bonus tracks um we did in 2023 so they're new acoustic bonus tracks uh five songs that are actually on the mood swings record that we just did new versions of and they're done acoustically and they sound quite different but interesting so the hardcore fans will appreciate that and then there's a poster there's a couple drink coasters <laughs> stickers um all kinds of crap like that. I was, I was going to ask you, I mean, between, you know, bonus tracks, posters, coasters. I mean, is there anything that you said, nah, we're not going to put that in there. That's ridiculous. Uh, my buddy, <laughs> my buddy, Andy Kern did a cereal box inside <laughs> his. And I was like, yeah, I don't see the cereal box thing happening, but he went with it and people love it. So I'm probably wrong. I also uh, read that there's like a, there's like a blockchain NFT component to this. Tell me what, what that's all about. Well, really, in a nutshell, what this is, is that the whole package is minted on the blockchain um, as a digital rarity. So we're only doing a thousand of these pieces. There'll never be more than a thousand. And once you buy this deluxe package, you get a numbered, signed and authenticated version that's authenticated and minted on the blockchain. So this is to our knowledge, the first time that physical and digital have ever come together and been minted as a unique NFT. Um, you know what, but you, the NFT thing is really a confusing, weird issue with people when you start to talk about it because they have this image of bored apes and, you know, like just weird JPEGs <laughs> that people bought and sold for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And in this case, we really wanted to uh, avoid that as being the narrative of what we're doing. We're literally offering up something unique, scarce, that you can't just get anywhere. We've authorized it, and now we're giving it to you if you want to purchase it. And now you have true ownership over this. And the way that the ownership is actually, um, I guess, authorized is that it's minted on the blockchain. And, and the reason why that's important is that moving forward with Web3, you're going to have to create some sort of way of showing the world that this is your asset, this is in your wallet, and now if you want to go sell it, trade it, do whatever you want with it, there needs to be a way to verify that. So that's the only way moving forward with what's about to come in Web3, which is something I'm personally really into, but I get that most people are just like, uh, I just want to buy vinyl. Leave me alone. <laughs> right? So, so anything from just here's the vinyl. Leave me alone. To we'll get in into discussions deep in the weeds about uh, blockchain technology. Well, I mean, it's so funny. You know, guys are our age. We have to have our kids explain to us what the blockchain is, or yeah. even try to attempt to understand it. But I mean, it really is a, a, a remarkable package. And, and you know, to combine those things shows a, a great deal of foresight that. This is not just you know something that you're going to find in a record store. This is something that you're really going to own, you know, in perpetuity. Yeah, that, that that's exactly right. And uh, th an interesting part about that is is that you know, for instance, we put out a, a box set about five years ago. We did 1,500 pieces. We manufactured 1,500 pieces, and they sold for about 75 dollars US at the time. 
they've they've been long gone and sold out. We're not going to put it back into production. It's just not worth it for maybe, you know, 20, 50, or even 100 people that want it. You're not going to put yeah. something like that back into production. So the interesting part about that is, is that now if you go on to some sites where they resell physical pieces like Discogs is one, um, you'll see those things up for five or $600. So this is another way of negating that happening. Not that the price won't escalate, but at the end of the day, everyone's going to participate in that resale in the secondary market. And it's not unlike, you know, what Nike does with shoes, you know, they'll put out a special edition of a Jordan sneaker, uh, it'll be gone in 48 <laughs> hours, or think about uh, a Taylor Swift ticket that you know, the minute that thing goes on sale at 10am, five seconds later, every bot is gone in the middle. <laughs> and, and you know, you can't buy a ticket, or if you're right. going to, you now you've got to pay 10x of what it was the original price was. So this is really a way to negate that as well, and kind of do direct to consumer uh, purchasing and selling and just set up an ecosystem within, you know, the artist and the fan without 20 million people getting in the middle and all stealing your lunch money. And then because people think that the, the artist gets that money and, and we don't, you know, like if we make something and we sell it for 20 bucks and then it's resold for $300, we're, we're not part of that, you right. know? And so we're, we're really trying to solve that problem as well with, you know, with what we're attempting to do here. Now, Mood Swings has got kind of a, like an interesting path here because it, it was your second album, and it wound up being recorded, re-recorded many years ago as Mood Swings 2. What was the story about, about that, and why did you choose to, to re-record it back then? Uh, well, because, uh, you know, a lot of artists through the years, they find out after the fact that they don't own their master, right? So right. we were signed to Warner Music Canada and had an amazing relationship with them, and I and I still work with them with other bands. And uh, so it, it wasn't about any kind of weirdness or fallout or anything, but every artist wants to own their own content, right? So if I look at the original Mood Swings record, I don't own that. Um, mm. I wrote the songs on it, co-wrote the songs on that record, and we, we own the publishing, and we own the actual... Uh, songs that are on the record, but we don't own the physical record. So we wanted to re-record it and and do it ourselves, so we would own it. And now that version of the record is owned by Harem Scarum, not Warner Music Canada. And so that's the reason why bands do that. Yeah. It's just uh, look and bigger bands, to be quite honest, when they're putting songs into movie soundtracks or commercials or whatever they'll pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars to use a really popular song in a commercial. That money goes to the record label, not to the <laughs> artist. So another reason, if you had a hit song that you might want to do a re-record on that and own it and then pitch that one out to, uh, you know, whatever entity <laughs> wants to maybe use that. Just yeah. it's simply smart business. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 54 years old now. I've been doing this since I was 15 and, uh, you kind of learn things along the way and you just want to be a little bit smarter because if you're going to take the time and the effort to create music and, uh, you know, just make things, uh, you kind of want to own them, you know, or sure. at least control them in some way, shape or form. And uh, labels have, uh, you know, in, in the history of labels has been, you know, they they take a lot of risks, so they need to take a lot of money. And, and I get that. I've been on the other side of that. And I totally get it. I have no no uh, qualms about it but if you are in the position to maybe re-record own your own masters and then, then every artist would would want that 
1991, if we go back, uh, you know, thus I'll, I'll date myself here for a minute. I was working at an active rock station in the Midwest, which I eventually got fired from, but that's a different story for a different day. But, <laughs> no, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, it was something about not having an audience or some bullshit like oh, that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I remember about you know, working at that radio station was this bizarre and abrupt transition, you know, away from the music that they had been successfully playing for years. Yeah. And then suddenly hyper-focusing on exclusively on grunge and heavier alternative music at the expense of the audience that wasn't quite done with that old stuff yet. And, yeah. my, and my point of that is, you know, here's a band like Harem Scarum kind of coming out at, at, the, at the last moment, 1991. That's kind of when things are starting to change and the transition is happening. But yet you guys still produced 15 great albums over 32 years. And I have to think that there's, there's gotta be a certain respect, you know, respect uh, in that, that you stayed resilient and dedicated to what you guys were really great at. And that was producing great pop songs and, uh, and, and staying focused to that. Tell me about that transition for you guys and, and what kept you focused on, on what you do, because there were a lot of bands that simply, you know, change with the tides just to feel like they to, to either satisfy a record company or just to feel like they fit in. Yeah. I mean that you, you nailed it. I mean, in 1991, when we put out our first record, the debut record, we were literally uh, we were doing some touring dates with foreigner and foreigner got dropped. You know what I mean? So talk about a band that sold like 80 million records yep. that we're opening for. And we hear they just lost their record deal. So I remember thinking that day, well, what does that mean for us? We've sold no records and we do this style of music. Um, can't be good. But, um, you know, we kept going and we put out our singles and we're just at that time where, you know, Nirvana was coming out. Um, so never mind changed that whole landscape, you know, at radio. And I'll tell you, in North America, it was way quicker the shift of just like this is over like yeah. i mean it was it was instant but it wasn't the case in europe and in asia like they they stuck with us and fortunately we started selling records to give you some background like our first record came out in canada spain and portugal mood swings came out in over 50 countries so mm -hmm. that was really the saving grace for us the fact that we were international then by mood swings so that was a record that kind of launched us that got us out to the world and so fortunately we started selling records in other territories that weren't that quick to just throw us out the door <laughs> and um so we just kept making records and you know to be honest we did try different things over the years but but it wasn't really to chase anything because we ne we we sounded the way we sounded and we knew that we wrote songs that were that were natural to us but but we also got bored along the way because i mean we're talking 30 something years of record making so we we tried different things and you know what there was elements of grunge that i really really liked i liked dark and heavy because i grew up listening to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and mm -hmm. heavy metal music when I was in my early to mid teens. And I, I really liked uh, Alice in Chains and I, I liked elements of, you know, the dark, weird kind of grungy stuff. So it, it was a weird time for us. Right. But we just kept going, doing what we were doing and we never became rock stars, but we just kept doing our thing. <laughs> and here we are, many years later and we're, we're still alive. <laughs> right. But it's absolutely true that 
people around the world didn't stop listening to Poison. They didn't stop listening to, right. to Bon Jovi. Those records yeah. just continued to sell. You know, the Guns N' Roses never went away. And yet they were That's all right. kind of lumped into, you know, the, a, a similar genre space. But it's interesting yeah. to me how, you know, the gatekeepers here in North America, you're talking about, you know, radio, record promotion, record companies, concert venues. All of a sudden, they just change their minds, not because they dislike the music. They change because they felt like their hand was kind of being forced towards it, which I always thought was really very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I really can't think of a time in music when something changed that dramatically that violently that quickly you know what i mean it was just there was no transition from yeah i'm starting to see this happen or starting to see that happen it was literally overnight it was crazy and look we weren't old enough or doing it long enough to really feel the pain of of what happened but you know people in uh, that i know that were in bands that you know had maybe three or four records out like i mean that hit them hard you know because yeah. they built up this career that was now over we never really felt like we had a career at that time like we literally <laughs> walked right into the end of it right? right so it was a funny um there's a concert ticket of us on a friday night in toronto and nirvana on the saturday night and the friday night was our album release party at a place called the opera house in toronto saturday night nirvana and nobody had heard of Nirvana at that time. And I and I joke now, I go, we literally had a 24-hour career because the minute <laughs> that Toronto saw Nirvana, it was over for any band that was associated with, you know, hair metal or rock or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, we look like every other band that came out, you know, five years before that. And we, again, we're teenagers at that point. We're just like, oh, that's what a rock guy looks like so you grow your hair long you wear yep. the same clothes and you do kind of what everybody's doing and uh for for whatever reason you know we that that was the end of it and so anybody that looked or sounded like that was poison not the band but them too <laughs> and and that was it and so we really just started focusing on territories where we weren't beating our head against the wall because yeah there were there was really no hope of getting airplay um video airplay anything like that it was all the mechanisms that were that used to be in place to kind of promote what we were doing shut off to people like us you, you talk about the relationship that you had with the uh, warner and that it was still a good relationship but did, at any point did they you know try to convince you to change things up to be more like a grunge band or did they understand what you guys were all about and and left you alone yeah, well, you know what? They always left us alone creatively, which was really, you know, great about them. But, you know, individually, if you were talk to people, you know, that worked at the label, everybody had their personal opinions about it. And um, I think people that would like to see us sell more records and be more successful would have been like, hey, you guys need to come up with plan B here. This is not this is not going to fly. And then oddly enough, that's happening and we're hearing those things. But we're also hearing from more like the bean counter types going, you guys are doing really good in Asia. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, the creative types would have been happier that we were doing something a little more hip and current that was, you know, something that they could run out the door with and say, hey, listen to the new harem scarum record or whatever. It's it's really cool. And uh, But typically bands don't get to pivot and get yeah. to do, you don't get a second career at a first look, right? Well, so- 
Uh, and that ended a lot of careers for yeah. people. And I, I keep saying, fortunately for us, we were releasing territories. Our numbers were really good. We we're selling more and more records as we were putting out records. So Warner Music Canada was just like, well, just keep doing what you're doing, I guess. You know, like it wasn't really talked about that much. You yeah, know? It it, just- it's, it's funny, though, because, you know, it, it, from uh, from a radio station perspective, I, and I've told the story before, and I still think it, it still makes me laugh just to think about it, because, you know, we used to have promotional reps come in from record companies yeah. all the time. And yeah. so say like, uh, it's, it's 1990 and you know, yeah. these, these guys are coming in, they're looking like every hair metal band, like they could be in their own band. And then all yeah. of a sudden Nirvana comes out with, uh, with Nevermind. And these guys are walking in the office with flannel shirts and knit caps yeah. and smelling like clove cigarettes. And it was like, <laughs> I mean, you guys are a band from Canada. Suddenly all these record reps want you to look and sound like Seattle kids dressed like, freaking canadians i mean it's like uh it's just to me i just i found that to be very funny and in a way very shallow like absolutely and i mean look at the surface of like you know the record industry it's all about what's next you know it's just you know like we said it's not typically overnight it's a little bit of a slow transition but somebody always comes along and really flips it on its ass. And I mean, Nirvana did that in a way that I've never seen or heard before. And it will never happen again because we always had these coexisting uh, genres of music. So you would have Michael Jackson being number one on the pop charts, but you would also have White Snake and Bon Jovi on top of the, the rock charts. You know, if it's, let's say, you know, mid 80s, late 80s or something like that. So you would have these genres that would have their superstars and everybody would go, okay, I'm on this team. I'm into metal or I'm into rock or I'm into pop. And you would have Madonna, kids walking around the high school and you have the metal guys walking around the high school. And those things really existed. But it really felt like in 19... 91 or 92 that everybody just went that one direction and that was just the end of everything else for quite some time but oddly enough what happened right after that like 94 95 was like boy bands started coming out right so pop still always like ruled the uh you know i guess the hot 100 airwaves and then you know the whole rock element was just grunge that was it right it's funny because I've been listening to a lot of harem scaring records over the last week or two and uh, just not kind of catch myself up on, on things. And, <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, what's, what's true of those records is that, and, and, I, and I really believe this, it was a lot of real consistency in the quality of the, of the songwriting, the vocals, the musicianship. And it was very, very, I, I mean, it, it was of the time, but really consistent. I mean, you know, had this been out two years earlier, I mean, you would have been on the same on the oh, yeah. same conversation as a white snake. That's, that's, what's interesting about it. it, it you know, you, I, you would never say that harem scarum failed to live up to expectations because you became, you know, stars all across the world. But the timing is just, it's curious because that music yeah. today still sounds like the just great pop songs. Well, I mean, we always just started like just writing songs like with an acoustic guitar or piano. Uh, and then, you know, it was kind of the window dressing of the production of the time, if I'm being honest. But yeah, when I started getting into recording and writing, um, you know, Def Leppard Hysteria was a huge record. And so yeah. that had a major influence on me from a production perspective. And you're 100 percent right. I mean, 
probably 10, 15 years ago, we would we would like talk about like what what the hell happened way more than we do today. It's kind of come full circle and has gained some sort of weird respect just by hanging around this long. But at the time when we were like stay away from this kind of band it was it was really bizarre and shocking because we were like okay well we haven't been doing this that long but there's really a a a huge backlash against the style of music that we're doing and people that have been doing it longer said to me look man if you would have come out three years earlier you would have sold 10 million records you know and like yeah and look we went to you know, once we finished our first record, we had meetings in Los Angeles with, the, you know, the Warner counterparts, you know, Geffen was a Warner affiliate at the time, uh, the, that Warner Brothers office. And to your point about people just flipping on a dime, we'd go in and have meetings with people and they're like, this is incredible. We love it. Slowly slipping away was our first single on the first record. They're like, this will kill it at radio here. And then those people, like nobody touched that record. So yep. We never had an official U.S. release in the history of the time we were on Warner. So think about that. I mean, the biggest rock market in the world, and same with the U.K. So U.K. and America never released a harem scarum record officially for the first 11 years of our career. Amazing. Like talk about talk about being handcuffed and going out there with your hands behind your back and and trying to make a go of it. And it wasn't until we started releasing records independently and just doing licensing deals around the world that we started to grow our audience in two of the biggest territories in the world for rock music. So it's it's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know when you, when you talk about, you know, the international success, I I, w- I was watching an interview that you did and it was on uh, is on YouTube, and, and you, there was a discussion about the song honestly, and it was really interesting because if you look on Spotify, there's like 16 million plays of that song alone, yeah. far and away yeah. the most visibility of maybe any song you guys have ever done. Yeah. But that song's track record, and it's been resurrected a number of times, especially like in the in the Philippines. It's a really yeah. interesting story about you know that one song and and its lifespan. Yeah, I mean you know ballads do really well in. Southeast Asia, specifically in the Philippines, when we released our first record, Warner Music Philippines, that just opened up their first Warner office in the Philippines in the early 90s, um, was like, hey, let's go to radio with the ballad, right? So they go to radio with Honestly, it becomes a number one hit, and it's number one for six months at, at radio in the Philippines. Then the next single, Something to Say, was the other ballad on the record. And that was the next number one single. (laughs) So we had the two back-to-back number one ballad singles in the Philippines in 1992, I guess it would have been. And that was our first gold record. And actually, Warner Music's first gold record in the history of Warner in the Philippines. So it was really, like, cool and weird and Probably as I'm like 21 or 22 years old, I probably couldn't even find the Philippines on a map, right? And I'm just like, (laughs) all right, well, that sounds good. What happened later on was like about 10 years later, I start, you know, when YouTube starts, you know, becoming popular, internet, all that stuff. I see really weird, like, you know, videos from the Philippines or people covering it. And then I see this girl, what was her name? Rachel Ann Go. She won Filipino Idol doing honestly and then (laughs) once we went to the philippines we started doing some shows the promoter there said he goes if you walk down the street you stop anybody and you ask them or you sing them that song they know (laughs) and 
and I go, come on, right? So we literally started doing it. We were doing it in a restaurant. We go, hey, do you know this song, Honestly? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> so it was this really bizarre thing because, you know, it became popular with us in the early 90s, then and again in the early 2000s with, a, with an idol contestant. And then if you go on YouTube, you can see idol x factor people sing that song and so it just became one of those songs out there yeah one of the things that that i that i did notice is that you've always been involved in either co-producing or or producing these records and obviously you wouldn't keep doing it if you didn't love it but as i think about the history of the band i wonder you know was that solely a creative choice for you to be producing these records or was it kind of a means of of protection and self-preservation of of the product itself it was it was a weird thing because you know in in at that time you know you had to get a meaningful recording budget to go out and make a record so it wasn't like you could just grab a laptop and start putting down ideas that could later be turned into a record you had to have big budgets and and a lot of uh means to 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 make a quality record and the style of record that we were making was a big production right like there was a million backing vocals tons of guitar overdubs so just sitting in the studio alone uh if you're paying two thousand dollars a day to make that record in a big studio you're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars to even get through the first round of backing vocals and overdubs and all that stuff so you know it was a sign of the times that we felt um, that we really needed to get more hands-on with our own recordings for, for that reason alone. And plus, I always loved doing that. So even when I was 13, 14 years old, I had my own little studio. I'd record neighborhood bands. And I always did that on the side of Harem Scarum. There was never a time throughout the whole Harem Scarum career that I wasn't working and producing and mixing and and uh, just started building up the studio. But but originally for harem scarum that was my main uh reason for making records and having a studio and then it just branched out into other bands wanting to come into the studio and i ended up you know escalating the whole thing and it turned into a giant full you know ssl room full production facility that later on you know engineer and producer friends of mine would love to come into and work because it was a great you know it was a world-class studio at that point yeah and so in canada we did so many rock records like over the years. It, it was insane. Anything from, you know, Billy Talent, Big Wreck, Three Days Grace, you know, Blue Rodeo, Muse actually came in and did a, a mm. bonus track while they were in Toronto. Um, yeah, endless, endless uh, amounts of, uh, you know, cool projects that uh, ended up coming to the studio. I uh, was listening to uh, the Rubber album, Ultra Feel, the other day. Oh yeah, which I really, really liked. I think anytime you you start a song off by uh, by squeeze, you kind of you kind of got me hooked on that one. Another <laughs> right, na- yeah, right. N- another nail on my heart was a was a it's a it's it's a good choice to start off on. But that was a really yeah. that was a really good record and and very different than what Harem Scarum was doing. It's it you know it, it's not to say that you did it because you're finally you know pandering for something. It was it made sense to try something to try something different. It really came off. Sounding terrific. Tell tell me about uh, about rubber. Yeah, we you know we purposely got bored. Well, we we purposely changed the production approach because we really got bored with what we were doing. And you know, even at that time, or or even 10, 15 years ago, we say like, how many bands just make the same record over and over again and keep getting to do that for thirty plus years? And we really couldn't think of many, if any, at all. Maybe ACDC, and then again, I mean, you know. 
it's fully rooted in back in black and like, you know, this giant career and it allows them the opportunity to, to be ACDC. But for a band like us that really hadn't solidified ourselves in any way, shape or form, we kind of thought, well, there's a blank canvas for us to kind of just do whatever we want. And it was really in our nature just to kind of go screw it. We just want to write songs that we like. And, and it, we, we were into that raw, just simple production let's just get in there as a band play these uh somebody at warner music japan when we delivered i think maybe that record or the one before it said these are really cool demos <laughs> like you know these are awesome demos guys like when are you going to start the real record and we're like ah that is the real record and you're like oh no you know so bad sign but you know yeah so we went from you know, trying to sound larger than life, 20 million backing vocals, a million guitar overdubs to strip down to bass, drums and guitars, almost no backing vocals. Sometimes songs wouldn't even have guitar solos because we were just doing, you know, middle eight things that were a little bit more a sign of the times, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, but you know what? We liked a lot of that stuff. I mean, I I like pop music. I like pop records, but I also like metal records. So, you know. We looked at bands like, you know, Queen, that, like when we were growing up, Queen could do the lightest, fruitiest little song about Freddie's cat. And then they could also <laughs> do this heavy, plodding, detuned yep. thing that just rips your face off. And I go, why not? Right. I mean, it's variety. It's interesting. But you really throw fans off the trail. You know, like, I mean, if we could write. Uh, a book on how to lose fans and how to trick people. It's just like, yeah, keep changing the style of music, keep changing the production, change right. your name every, every once in a while, and then just, you know, go away, then come back, go away, come back. And so <laughs> it, it was just, you know, uh, we did the best we could based on where we were at in our lives and, and kind of what we felt like doing. There was no roadmap for us. There was no mentor in our corner going hey guys let's come up with a strategy let's maybe do this and we'll get here none of that like we literally just wrote songs made records rinse and repeat with no really end goal in mind other than we just like doing this <laughs> you and uh you and pete lesburns have been working together for an awful long time you know 35 years probably longer than yeah. that yeah you know, as someone who has worked, you know, in long term, uh, you know, partnerships in the past, I know it's not always easy to, yeah. to to continue to work in this with the same people on the same stuff over and over again. Tell me about that relationship and, and, and how has it changed over the years and, and how have you maintained it uh, over the course of, of 35 years? Yeah, I mean, again, it wouldn't be possible if we just didn't go out and do other things. Right. And so me working with other bands my whole life, I never felt like I needed something to be my way because I never have the opportunity to get my way. So, you know, when I'm working with other bands, I think they find that refreshing that I'm not trying to put my thumbprint. I'm not trying to get my idea in there because I never get my idea in there, you know? <laughs> so making as many records as I have, I've really kind of exhausted that whole let, let's do this my way thing. And it just opens up, you know, I think everything like, you know, from instrumentation, uh, songwriting, um, just the way that you approach record making. If you're, if you want to move forward and you're curious enough to kind of like try and make it better, 
you're just open to working with other people and open to other people's ideas. And Pete and I have just respected each other, you know, our own abilities and collectively what we do together. It's not lost on us that, you know, when him and I get together, we write a song, we record it. That's harem scarum. Like that's that sound. Yeah. And you really can't get it. You know, he can't get it without me. I can't get it without him, you know? So we've always been aware of that and kind of respected it. And, and again, branched off, did our own things enough that when we got together, we just knew what the goal was and we just had a good time with it. You know, like really it's always been fun. It's never really been this like arduous task or right. a crazy tour to make a record. Well, that's kind of why I asked the question about you producing and, and choosing to do it yourself. I mean, a lot of times, you know, a, a band won't be given a whole lot of choice. Uh, and who produces them. And all of a sudden it's a third party coming in that doesn't have, you know, the same history that you have, doesn't yeah. have, doesn't really have the same level of wanting to protect what you got and it could screw the whole thing up. And, and yeah, I mean, you could talk for hours about examples of that throughout the, throughout music, but, but to have that kind of relationship and enough trust in each other where you don't feel you have to do that, you know what you're doing. I mean, that really says something, you know, very powerful about the relationship the two of you have. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I mean, look, as far as guitar players go, I mean, I, I literally never worked with anyone better, you know, like, yeah. I mean, there's different, but there's, but there isn't better. And I think we just develop a, a work ethic together over the years, like to be in a room with somebody when you're 18, 19 years old, and just have that connection from writing and work ethic because really it is about the work right yeah you know if you're not willing to put in the time and the effort and when a lot of our friends and even bandmates were just out partying having a great old time we were in the studio on a saturday night instead of you know like out you know hanging out at a club and having fun and and getting into trouble uh we did our share of that later on on the road but you know <laughs> really um, it, it was never anything that we thought we could just sidestep. You know, there yeah. wasn't a short sh shortcut from A to B. We knew if we wanted a great record and a great song that we'd have to sit down and work really, really hard to get it. And we still do that to this day. And that's why they're becoming slower and slower, you know, throughout the years, because, you know, we feel like we we're treading the same ground a little bit. It's not as exciting as it used to be right. to sit in the room and create and do that thing in life just kind of gets in the way and we're and we're all doing our own things um so you know we'll probably do some more stuff in the future but you know the full-length records were a six-month kind of grind of really getting in there and doing a lot of hard work because when you listen to them i think most people can appreciate that that didn't happen in five minutes right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> rarely yeah. ever does but no. um but I, I mean, but but it sounds like that if uh, if there was a, a notion to start working on new material, that wouldn't be a hard choice to make. You guys would do it pretty quickly. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. You know, you know, we've talked about it, and we've even gotten together, and you know, an hour of just kind of trading ideas, or whatever. We go up for lunch, and then three hours later, we're still eating lunch, and uh, then then I go home, and that's the end of it. <laughs> and I go, all right, well. <laughs> We've turned into, uh, yeah, we've turned into a little bit different people. Yeah. You, you've become uh, those guys now. Yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not nineteen and want to take over the world. We're just kind of like, let's have another drink and lunch, and that's all more fun. Harry, congratulations on the on the thirtieth anniversary reissue of Mood Swings. It, it looks like a like a really amazing package like we talked about before. And I wish you luck with it. I hope it goes. I hope it does well. I hope uh, if you get into the uh, the blockchain part of it, it it's with you forever. <laughs> 
but it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and you know what? I should mention that it's available. Um, you can purchase it at singmarket.com. That's singmarket.com. Yeah, very good. That's where you can go to find it. And uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. The 30th anniversary reissue of Harem Scarum's Mood Swings is available now. You can find out more on their website at haremscarum.net. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also email me at backsatrock102.com. I would love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.